Hi there, this is Abel James, and welcome to the Fat Burning Man Show. Today, I'm really excited to be here with Tom Naughton, who's a documentary filmmaker and the man behind Fathead, and also a stand-up comedian, so watch out. But I wanted to make a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Firstly, I have incredible news. For the second time this year, your support has made me a number one best-selling author on Amazon. Um, Intro to Paleo has been number one in weight loss, weight maintenance, and nutrition for several days now, rubbing shoulders with a 17-day diet, wheat belly, I'm actually interviewing the author next week, as well as nutrition and fitness bohemists like Bob Harper, Tim Ferriss, and my friends Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson. So it's totally incredible stuff. And I mentioned this when my podcast first blew up, but you may or may not know that my blog, my books, my podcast, this is all totally self-published. It's just me sitting at my desk. And uh, there's no advertising, no corporate PR, no marketers in the background or anything. And competing with this enormous diet and fitness industry is not easy, but it's incredible that we live in an age where all this is possible. So I want you to know that I couldn't do any of this without you. So thanks so much for your support and your killer reviews on Amazon. And I want to extend a warm, hearty congratulations to Andy Fisher from across the pond, who wrote a great review and won a copy of the Lean Body Academy, which is my video training course. Now, in case you missed it, the book is called Intro to Paleo Diet. So you can just type in Abel James or Intro to Paleo Diet on Amazon. It should come right up. Or you can swing by fatburningman.com and check everything out yourself. Now, speaking of, if you do want to swing by fatburningman.com and enter your email, I have a very, very special invitation that's going to be coming to my email list next week. So if you're already on the list, stay tuned. If you're not yet, then you can just hop over to fatburningman.com and uh, and join us. All right, so now to the interview with Tom. We had a great time talking about all sorts of things, but just a little background. Uh, Tom is the guy behind Fathead, which is a great documentary available on Netflix and Hulu. Actually, it was the number one documentary on Hulu for a while, and uh, I just stumbled across it a while back, but rewatched it the other night, and it's a blast. It has lots of great information and lots of familiar faces uh, in this space. So Tom and I talk about why grandmothers and farmers know what makes us fat but nutritionists don't, why no one on earth should take statins, why the BMI framework is complete bunk, and why traditional diet advice is baloney. All right, let's go hang out with Tom. All right, we're here with a man behind the film Fathead, Mr. Tom Naughton. How's it going, Tom? It's going well. How's it going with you? It's going fantastic. One thing that I love to start with is the two-minute life story. So how did you become interested in nutrition and health, especially considering that you're a stand-up comedian? And they typically, at least the stereotype, is that they don't care that much about that sort of thing. And I have to do this in two minutes, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All <two> right. <laughs> uh, well, I was interested in nutrition uh, because I actually wrote for a health uh, magazine as when I was fresh out of college, oh, really? uh, passing out, a, yeah, a lot of the same bad advice that I now dispute, you yeah. know, eat mm-hmm. low fat, eat your grains, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. And thanks to following that advice, I spent a good part of my adult life overweight, um, trying various diets. They all failed. Um, I actually started making Fathead because I wanted to produce a kind of a little comedy show called In Defense of Common Sense, where a common sense comedian would look at issues of the day. Hmm. And I was going to do the first pilot episode on how we treat fat people in society. That's interesting. Yeah, and I'd never watched Super Size Me, and I kind of thought I would watch that to see if it had any, you know, any commentary on how we treat fat people that might be interesting. And by the time I finished watching Super Size Me, I was so annoyed I decided to make Fathead (laughs) instead. And it was really during the research of Fathead that I got this completely renewed fascination with nutrition because as I started jumping into the research, I started realizing, whoa, you know, it looks like a lot of what we've been told is just not true. Right. And so then that took me down. It took the film in a in a whole nother direction. So uh, that's it. Was that under two minutes? <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. Most people uh, can't do that. Whew, okay. <laughs> Although we didn't get into your childhood and all of that, but that's all right. So let's start large in general. Uh, why is the traditional advice and everything that people are told is true not true? Why is it baloney in, in your words? What's wrong with it or why do I think it happened? Either. How about Either. both? Yeah. What's wrong with it is we have become a nation of anti-fat hysterics. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the other mistakes that we have made in, in our diets, I think, the root cause of that is because we were told fat is bad. 
Yeah. Saturated fat will kill you. Cholesterol will kill you. And that led to us eating more grains and eating more refined carbohydrates in general. That, in my opinion, kicked off the, uh, the rise in obesity and diabetes and pretty much put us where we are today. And the tragic thing about that is that the notion that fat causes heart disease, that cholesterol is bad, that was speculation. There was never evidence. Mm -hmm. And they were the attitude of the people promoting it was kind of like, we know we're right, so let's start saving lives right now, and we'll wait for the evidence that we're right to come in later. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they were wrong. That evidence never did come in, but by then a whole industry had built up around it, and that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. So can you talk about specifically one of the things that you cover in Fathead, I think very well. So talking about Ansel Keys and the outdated and or completely fabricated data from the 1950s. Sure. He um, he got it in his head that it was dietary fat that causes heart disease. And he collected observational data, which, by the way, observational data alone should always be suspect. There's mm -hmm. a lot of problems with observational data. Right. But he collected observational data on fat intake and versus rates of heart disease. And he was so convinced he was right that when he found countries that didn't fit his theory where the intake of fat was high but heart disease was low, he just kind of conveniently left that out of his final data set. <laughs> and he sort of cherry-picked the, uh, the countries that fit the pattern that he wanted to see. Now, a lot of scientists at the time poo-pooed his theory, poo-pooed his ideas, uh, disputed you know, everything that he said. But he was a, from what I've read, an extremely forceful individual, mm -hmm. and he was determined to prove himself right, and he eventually managed to land on the board of the American Heart Association, which, after years of disputing that fat in the diet was the cause of heart disease, suddenly adopted that theory, and they became the big champions for, uh, for the idea that we need to cut back on fat. And of course now, you can pretty much get the American Heart Association seal of approval on any low-fat food, even if it's Cocoa Puffs, as long as you pay the license fee. Yeah, or some sort of synthetic cheese product Yeah, without the, cheese the, in the, it. The, the, the type of thing they have to label cheese food, I yeah. think, because <laughs> it's not cheese. <laughs> so what is the truth then about cholesterol and saturated fat specifically? Cholesterol is, an, is, a, uh, is, is a case of guilt by association mm -hmm. because, if, first off, even the correlation between uh, having a high cholesterol level and heart disease, it's pretty weak. It only shows up in certain populations, primarily men under the age of 65. Doesn't really show up in women. Yeah. Uh, doesn't seem to show up in certain foreign populations. But what correlation is there is most likely a, a case of guilt by association because one of the things that apparently will cause heart disease is stress. And when you are under stress, your body produces more cholesterol because among its many other useful functions, cholesterol is uh, important for the production of stress hormones. Right. So it makes sense. If you're under stress, you are probably more prone to heart disease because of the stress and at the same time your body's producing a higher level of cholesterol because you're under stress so you know bad scientists if they see a correlation they think they're seeing cause and effect which may be true but may not in this case it's not yeah so another thing i wanted to cover is uh, you talk about the obesity epidemic being largely affected by a shift in demographics and exaggerated so i thought that was really interesting can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, and I want to, um, I should probably preface that by saying, because I have had a lot of people say, what do you mean, you know, look at look around at all the fat people. I'm, I'm aware that there are more fat people than when I was a kid, you know. I've been to malls, I've been to airports. Uh, the point I was trying to make in the film is when they say whatever the current figure is, 30% of Americans are obese or whatever, they always show these huge people walking by. Yeah. And yes, those people are obese. They're morbidly obese. Right. They're way, way over the limit for obese. So when they say a third of Americans are obese, a third of us don't look like that. Um, what happened was the, the definition of obesity was set fairly low at a BMI of 30. And now if you don't have good muscle tone and you have a BMI of 30, then yeah, you're probably pretty chubby. Right. But you can have a BMI of 30 by being muscular. 
<laughs> Michael Jordan has a BMI over 30. Yeah. Tom Cruise has a BMI over 30. Mel Gibson has a BMI over 30. None of us would look at any one of those guys and say, whew, there's an obese dude. <laughs> uh, so the standard was kind of set fairly low. Yeah. Uh, and it was set at that at a time when a lot of Americans were just under it. And then we did gain, whoever's figure used, the average weight gain has been somewhere between like 8 and 15 pounds, depending on whose figure you use. Mm -hmm. Well, let's call it a 10-pound gain. Well, a 10-pound gain put a lot of people who were sort of just under that obese cutoff point to just over it. So when we show these figures of just these wildly expanding rates of obesity, that's because a whole lot of people have crossed a line that was already right in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, me personally, my BMI is 25, and I don't think many people would argue that I'm technically overweight, which is no. that's that's right on the line. Uh, so it's definitely a flawed framework, and it's something that I, I trash in a lot of my blog posts and books and things like that. But also, you, you talked about how the median age has shifted, and that's something that's not really widely talked about. That That's right. That's the, There's also been a, a demographic shift, a couple mm -hmm. of them that have had something to do with this. Um, we are, on average, 10 years older. So if we've had a, gain, a weight gain on average of 8, 10, 15 pounds, whatever figure you use, well, you know what? Most people I know get 10 pounds heavier or so as they get older yeah. or more. Mm -hmm. So the demographics certainly had something to do with it. And the other thing is the, is the changing racial composition. Uh, the BMI standard was basically created um, – kind of like by white people for white people, for thin white people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you know, you've looked into it. To be considered normal on the BMI scale, you have to not only not be fat, you almost have to be on the skinny side. Yeah. Well, uh, of all the major ethnic groups in, in America, African Americans have the largest, thickest, and densest bones, which, by the way, they also have the lowest rate of osteoporosis for mm -hmm. exactly that same reason. Well, if you have bigger, thicker, denser bones, biologically, you are more likely to carry around more weight, including more muscle, by the way. Um, so the African-American population has increased, but especially the Hispanic population has increased, and they have, on average, the second thickest, densest bones. Mm -hmm. So the population has gone from being less and less sort of, you know, the, the bogus model of the ideal person of being this sort of thin white person right. to our ethnic uh, mix has changed to where we have more and more, uh, we have more African-Americans, but especially more Hispanics who tend to be thicker people anyway. And I'm not saying necessarily fatter. I am saying thicker. Mm -hmm. And so demographically, we've we've changed, and that also kind of created this impression that there's just this wild epidemic going on. Now, I'm not saying there aren't more fat people out there, well, that, which is another thing, by the way. A lot of the, that's an average weight gain. Oh, we've gave an ad, average of 10, 15 pounds or whatever. Well, a small percentage of the population has gotten hugely fat. Right. And those are the ones we see waddling around that give us the impression like, oh, my God, we've become a nation of huge people. Yeah. So you start with an imprecise measurement, have some demographic shifts, and all of a sudden it's a sensational right. uh, topic. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing that we, we don't have more fat people. We, we certainly do. But the, uh, this sort of ex rate of explosion, that, that has definitely been, been exaggerated. But I know there are more fat people out there. I go to my daughter's school for you know, the school concert or whatever, and, and she's eight years old, and I, I see kids with, with bellies. Now, yeah. it's not a majority of them by any means, but, you know, you didn't see a lot of eight-year-old girls walking around with little pot bellies when I was growing up, so yeah. we do have a problem. Mm -hmm. And you talk about in the film uh, <laughs> some of the reasons that that might be the case, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about uh, Super Size Me in particular. Many people were huge fans of the movie, but you clearly weren't. Uh, so what was the main problem with the film in your mind? Well, I actually did kind of like it as a piece of entertainment. Yeah, uh, it's definitely I that. I think Morgan Spurlock is a really good entertainer. So purely as a piece of entertainment, I was kind of enjoying the rhythm of it. And, you know, he has a quirky sense of humor mm -hmm. and all that. So I appreciated his uh, I appreciated his skills as an entertainer. However, from a factual standpoint, the, the first thing that just jumped right out at me because I am a computer programmer is, you know, uh, his math didn't add up. Yeah. 
And I was aware of that because having spent a fair amount of my life overweight and gone on different diets, I, of course, at various times had looked up the calorie counts of different McDonald's foods. And when his nutritionist told him twice on camera, you're consuming more than 5,000 calories a day, it suddenly hit me. There's no way this guy's following his rules because mm -hmm. his rules said three meals a day and I'll only supersize if they ask me. Well, even if you're supersizing your meals, it's hard to get to 5,000 calories per day at McDonald's. It's a lot of food. That's a lot of food, even at McDonald's. So it occurred to me, this guy's eaten way more than his rules would have allowed. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had people argue with me, well, so maybe he ordered a supersized meal and then ordered an extra cheeseburger. And it's like, well, then that's supersizing without being asked. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're doubling the size of your meals, then that has nothing to do with supersizing. And of course, he kind of blamed the whole obesity thing on McDonald's supersizing their meals. Mm -hmm. And then it came out, I think, in the credits, he'd only been asked to supersize nine times. That's yeah. twice a week. Mm -hmm. So, well, how, if, if supersizing is making everybody fat, you only supersize nine times in a month. Explain that one to me. <laughs> yeah. And he also said, I'll eat everything on the menu at least once. Well, what happened on the days when you ate the chicken salad for lunch? Mm -hmm. How did you manage to get to 5,000 calories on that day? Yeah. So he was clearly doubling up and probably eating a lot of desserts. Mm -hmm. But in that case, all he proved is eating a lot of desserts is a bad idea. Yeah. And I think we all knew that already. Right. And so there was that aspect of it annoyed me. And also um, just kind of his premise, it's McDonald's fault mm -hmm. that we have, you know, it's that, that we have an obesity epidemic because they're offering us too much food. Yeah. And it's like, look, you know what? I don't care if they offer me a thousand French fries for a nickel. I'm still the one who eats them. Mm hmm. And a lot of restaurants are seem to be doing that these days. But you bring up a really interesting uh, theme, and it was funny because rewatching Fathead last night with my girlfriend, she said, "Uh oh, is this?" And it, she was watching it for the first time. She's like, "Is this pro McDonald's?" <laughs> but as you keep watching it, what you're saying is really that like corporations respond to consumer demand, and and what you're advocating is a freedom of choice. And as consumers, we're actually the ones in control. Exactly. That's kind of an inspiring thing to think. Right? Exactly. I, I'm, I'm not pro McDonald's. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I get these emails where people are very angry at me. And in one paragraph, they'll accuse me of uh, they'll, they'll accuse me of being a front. McDonald's actually made this film. And then <laughs> because they're mad at me farther down in the same email, they'll complain about the production values being cheap. And I'm like, put those two thoughts together in your head. <laughs> McDonald's made it. But the production values are cheap. If McDonald's <laughs> made it, it, it would have looked like Avatar. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, I'm not pro-McDonald's. I'm not anti-McDonald's. And in addition to being interested in nutrition, another subject I'm interested in that I've read a lot of books on happens to be economics. Mm -hmm. So when I say, oh, it's McDonald's fault, they made us fat by offering in this food, that's not the way markets work. We don't, we don't consume things because people offer them to this. They offer them to us because it's what we'll consume. They don't tell us what to eat. We tell them what to sell us by what we buy. Right. And McDonald's tried the McLean burger, didn't sell. Taco Bell tried Border Lights, didn't sell. Mm -hmm. So they could offer all the healthy food or at least food that fits other people's definitions of healthy all they want. If we don't buy it, they have no reason to sell it. Right. And I would imagine the reason that a lot of those things completely flop is number one, they probably don't taste very good. Right. But number two is people don't go to McDonald's for health food. Right. No, exactly. And that was one of the people I interviewed on the street who was, you know, a, a lean, healthy looking woman. And I said, well, if you, if McDonald's sold broccoli, would you buy broccoli? And she kind of said, I don't go to McDonald's to buy broccoli. I go right. to McDonald's to buy French fries. Yeah. So, you know, people get the cause and effect backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and for those of you out there, you know that I'm not pro McDonald's at all, but I, I definitely am for freedom of choice and, and information, you know, right. and, and I think it's, it's pretty clear that the information is out there that McDonald's is not health food. And, and there are some exceptions to that, you know, when they have commercials claiming to be healthy, that's a little bit of an issue. But I mean, for the most part, I think they're definitely reactionary. Um, but let's talk a little bit about <laughs> something else that came up. And I, I think it was one of the doctors spoke about this, that we seem to have lost 
our common sense. And and one of the things he talked about is that grandmothers everywhere know that starches make you fat. You know, things like bread, potatoes, etc. And people have known this for centuries, but now we're being told to eat, you know, 300 plus grams of carbs or more a, a, a day. So what in the world is going on? Yeah, that was uh, that was Dr. Al Sears mm-hmm. who said, you know, your grandmother knew that potatoes and bread would would make you fat. Right. And of course, our grandmothers only were going on centuries of knowledge passed down from one person to another. And then the uh, you know, then the, the really smart people jumped in and decided they had it all figured out. Uh, you know, and that, that again gets back to what I brought out in the film, the McGovern Nutrition Committee and all that basically declared fat is bad for us. We need to eat more carbohydrates. And uh, it was another doctor in the film, Mike Eads, who pointed out, you know, if you look at what uh, farmers feed their cattle to fatten them up, it's what the USDA tells us to eat. So we'll slim down. <laughs> I love that part. And that's another thing I've I've noticed, uh, especially now that my wife and I live on a mini farm and we're considering getting certain animals and she's been reading up a lot on how you raise different animals. And it's funny, you read farm books and all that. They all know, well, if you want them to get fat, feed them more grain. Yeah. Farmers just know this stuff, you know, but it was the uh, it was the whiz bang nutrition scientists who decided they knew better. And and again, they decided they knew better. They yeah. didn't change their minds based on reams of evidence. They just decided they knew better. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so ridiculous. And and you definitely I used to love Monty Python growing up and I, I'm imagining that scene of the <laughs> the murmuring experts in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> just cr- kept cracking me out. Well, it's funny you made the, the Monty Python connection because we were, you know, we did this thing on an absolute shoestring budget. Yeah. And I hired a, an animator who was fresh out of film school and willing to work at a, you know, uh, what for what for both of us was a reasonable wage. He was happy to be animating a film and I was happy he, he wasn't charging me an arm and a leg. Right. And I told him, you know, I we we can't spend hours and hours and hours and hours on each little animation trying to make it 3D and perfect. I said, so, you know, cut things up, make it 2D, give me a Monty Python style, which he kind of smiled and said, awesome. I love Monty <laughs> Python. So It really worked. It's, it's hilarious. It, it plays to its weaknesses very well. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, that is a compliment. Cheap, you might as well go cheesy and make it fun, right? Yeah, exactly. So what was the process like um, to kind of shift gears a little bit as a first time filmmaker the process was me falling on my face making a ton of mistakes and (laughs) learning from each one and trying to do a little better as i went along in a nutshell i can't tell you how many mistakes i made basically i borrowed a camera from my sister-in-law who uh, is a documentary producer got a little bit of advice from her and i ran out and started shooting and uh, (laughs) and you know had to throw away footage uh, that didn't come out right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there was, you know, occasionally I, I would do an interview and then I'd look and the battery and the wireless mic had gone dead and I didn't <laughs> have any backups. I mean, you know, I was an idiot trying to learn all this stuff as I went, but, uh, kept hacking away at it and fixing mistakes until we, we got it where it is. And how long did it take you for the whole process? I actually worked on that off and on for well over two years. Wow. The reason being, I was financing it myself, yeah. uh, and I had a wife and kids, and uh, and a mortgage, and a job as a programmer. Mm-hmm. So I would, for a while, just work, and just build the accounts back up, and then I would take a little time off and go do some more shooting and a little more editing and uh, add to it, and that that was it. Just kept fly around, do yet another interview. And uh, that that was basically the process off and on, off and on until there was enough on that it was finished. Yeah. And you get some really cool people on there, lots of big names. And uh, I, I think I heard in another interview, you basically just asked them and they said yes. <laughs> right. It was that's it was right. That that's right. Yeah. That's right. Because they and they didn't know me from Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really impressed with how gracious they were. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, but there were people who said no mm-hmm. because they didn't know who I was. Right. But, you know, I would um, I had cut from existing footage kind of a brief trailer trying to give an idea of what it was going to be about. And I had put that on YouTube and I would send them a link to YouTube and describe what I was trying to do and what I hope to cover and send them a nice email. And uh, 
most of them agreed to, to be on camera. Yeah, that's so cool. And then we were talking before uh, this interview a little bit about Netflix and how that really opened up some doors in terms of distribution. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We, um, we ended up first with a U.S. DVD distributor who put it on Amazon originally. Um, so for a couple of years, it was mostly Amazon sales. Uh, and then that distributor went bankrupt, uh, <laughs> owing us royalties, which they never paid. Yeah. So for all of you out there who bought the DVD from Amazon, God bless you and thank you. But uh, <laughs> it went to a bankrupt company. I never got it. Uh, so crazy. Yeah. So then we had a foreign distributor put distributor in the in quotes there in your mind because mm -hmm. they're really not distributing they're just hanging on to the rights basically and at this point kind of blocking me from other distributors because they have the rights so we're currently trying to get away from them so finally sort of out of frustration we did uh first we just started making dvds and selling them ourselves through the blog which was great because we found a pretty good market for that yeah and then I had sent it to um, a, a company that distributes through the, uh, the digital world, Amazon, Hulu, iTunes, things like that. Mm -hmm. And the guy politely wrote back and said, I don't deal with first time filmmakers, but good luck. And then I started getting some good reviews from people who had seen it. And I would occasionally send him an email and include reviews. Yeah. And finally, after a year of me pestering him politely, but periodically, he called me up and said, you know what, I finally opened the DVD you sent me and watched it, and I actually like this. Hmm. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to break my rule. Let's just put it on Hulu and see what happens. So he put it on Hulu. It shot to number one in documentaries. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know that. Yeah, and for about a week, it was number three in all movies. Wow. So he That's said, fantastic. Oh, yeah, I was stunned. So he said, okay, there's a market for this. And he put <laughs> it on Netflix, and it promptly got like big numbers on Netflix. Yeah. And really, when it went to Netflix, it was as if it had just been released. It was really the first time it had wide, competent distribution. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking at first our DVD sales would go down because people would just go watch it on Netflix and not bother to buy it. And it was exactly the opposite. It went on Netflix and our DVD sales exploded. Yeah, that's so cool. Because people would watch it and say, I'm going to buy that. And a lot of times we get orders for two or three, which means I want it. And I think my brother needs to see this. Or <laughs> and my aunt Susie. Yeah. And my aunt Susie really <laughs> needs to see this. So <laughs> so Netflix was really kind of the, the driver of uh, of, of the popularity that it's it's reached now. And it, it went from when I when the thing first came out and it was on Amazon, I was trying to scare up interviews, couldn't get any. Mm -hmm. I'd get like two after all this effort. And then it went on Netflix and suddenly people are emailing me, can we interview you? So, I mean, the, the whole release on Netflix really gave it a huge boost. Yeah, it is so cool. And it, it's such an exciting time. I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, but yeah, I, I started this podcast just uh, at the beginning of the year and it's just me at my desk with a microphone, right. you right. know, interviewing people over Skype. But um, it bumped up against Jillian Michaels as the number two in the US and the UK and has been in the top 10, you know, just like across the world. So it's so exciting that yeah, that's just a great like, time to be alive. You it know? is. Yeah. It is. Especially with a, uh, <laughs> a, a message that might run counter to what the, uh, the people in charge say is the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the technology's made all, all the differences. I'm sure, you know, um, so, you know, so let's say 15 years ago, suppose I'd thought of fathead. So mm -hmm. what? Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to make it. Right. I, I couldn't have afforded to make it. Yeah. And the other thing with digital distribution and all that, um, if you don't mind me going on a little tangent, have you heard of a book called the long tail, the long tail? It sounds familiar. It basically is as brief as up here. I'll do two minutes on the long tail. See yeah. if I can start the clock, see if I can do it in two minutes again. <laughs> all right. You're uh, on. When it was all brick and mortar stores, you, you run out of shelf space. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at sales figures, they start very high, they go down and then they drop to nothing when you've reached the limit of what they can carry. Mm -hmm. So you go from best sellers to okay sellers down to zero. With the digital markets, you start with the, the high numbers, the best sellers, and then you go down, and that tail extends forever. Yeah. Uh, for example, and it's, this may not be the exact figure, but it's close. The 10,000th best seller on iTunes still sold 1,000 still, still copies. Yeah. So the tail goes out 
forever and it's just allowed people to find a whole lot more of the small films unknown bands uh, unknown writers whatever that that they might be interested in it's allowed people like you and me to just put it out there and see what happens without some gatekeeper saying no I don't think you're gonna sell a million copies so I'm not putting you on the shelf yeah <laughs> how'd I do was that under two minutes? it was you did very well that was actually about one minute Wow. <laughs> but yeah, I actually got some killer news this week, and my uh, my listeners will probably know about this, but uh, I'm number one on, on Amazon right now on the bestsellers list in weight loss. Outstanding. And, yeah, which I'm really excited about because there's no way that would have been possible. It's Right now, it's only an ebook. I totally self-published it, but there's no way that that would have happened even probably five years ago. That is outstanding. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm super and, stoked. Proof once again. I mean, there was no gatekeeper. You just decided to do it. Yeah, and the cool thing is that today, like you did, you can just make a movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or or write a book and put it out there. It used to be, uh, or even if you know today you wanted to make a, a typical movie or write a typical book and go through the traditional publishing process. There's all this financing involved, and you know, from beginning to end, not to mention writing it. It takes two years just to put it out there, and so yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's. It's a very exciting world that we live in now. Yeah, and plus, you financing, you know, because it was so expensive, you would have had to have found someone willing to invest in mm -hmm. you, some publisher or whatever. And, you know, I, I think it was uh, Richard Bach. You know, he had that mm -hmm. Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which became a huge bestseller. Right. And he had been to something like 35 publishers who turned him down. Wow. Now, imagine if after 33, he had said, oh, to heck with it, it's never going to sell and given up. Yeah. And how many Where, people do, you know, just right, give up ex at that point? Exactly. How many potential bestsellers did we never see because people got frustrated with one gatekeeper after another saying no Yeah. and, and just gave up, whereas now they can put it out there. And because anybody can put it out there, I mean, let's be honest, there's a whole lot of junk out there, <laughs> too. <laughs> but there are diamonds out there. Yeah. And it usually weeds itself out. Yeah. You know, and, or at least the, the things that are good are found um, or they have a much higher probability of being found at this point. That's that's right. And the long tail gets into that, too. It's because of the search engines that mm -hmm. say, if you liked this, you might also like that. Right. Because let's say you put out a piece of music and it so happens that people who are fans of the Beatles, a few of them kind of discover your music and buy it. Now, iTunes search engines will put up that, oh, people who like the Beatles also like this. Mm -hmm. So someone looks for Beatles, and they will get the suggestion, if you like the Beatles, you might also like this. Yeah, And it helps helps people discover those those unknowns that they might like. So, Well, you know, that's actually how I saw Fathead for the first time. It was like, <laughs> you know how Netflix has that thing where it rates things based on how much you've liked and rated other movies? Mm -hmm. I, I think it was like a, a five-star <laughs> or something like that. So, yeah, I, I put it at the top of my queue and watched it and, and really enjoyed it. Thank you. But, yeah, that's it's exactly the same technology. People who enjoyed Food, Inc. Uh, mm -hmm. And, of course, a lot of people who even who even watched and enjoyed Super Size Me ended up watching Fathead. So, yeah, it's that same interrelation, uh, you know, software that looks for people who like this, also like that. And a lot of people are watching Fathead now because they enjoyed Food, Inc. or they enjoyed supersize me or they enjoyed king corn and yeah. so netflix says and you might like this too right so cool so back about nutrition again and, and dieting um you were once a vegetarian correct but it didn't really work out well for you yeah i was a vegetarian for I, i'm you know i didn't write it down on a calendar but i think it was maybe five six seven years yeah and, and how did that go you know it didn't go well but the problem is it was um the health problems that I had from it came about slowly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'd given up meat and I was falling apart a month later, I probably would have figured it out. Yeah. But it was a, it was a slow thing. And also I became a vegetarian in my thirties and then I started getting slowly developed arthritis, uh, started gaining weight, started getting a little less energetic over time. And of course at the time I just thought, well, I guess this is what happens when you get in your thirties. Yeah. I'm getting older. Now the, joke about that now is I'm 53 and I feel a heck of a lot better than I did at 35. That's great. You know, but, uh, yeah, it, it just, it was a, it was a slow thing. And I finally realized this isn't working for me and switched my diet. And that's when it started to turn around. Yeah. I was a vegetarian myself on and off for uh, three plus years. And you're right. It, it wasn't something that happened 
right away. Actually, at the beginning, I, I thought I felt pretty well. And maybe that was just me being all self-important about it or something. Right, but, right. <laughs> well, but, but yeah. a lot of vegetarians, uh, they don't just give up meat. I mean, it's a right. lifestyle that attracts health-minded people for mm-hmm. the most part to begin with or people who want to get healthy. Right. And they've heard, well, this will help you be healthy. Well, you know, I don't know that many vegetarians who just gave up meat. A lot of them give up meat. They give up soda. They give up Little Debbie snack cakes. They stop smoking or whatever. And it's a whole lifestyle change. So, of course, they're going to feel better. And, you know, I don't think a vegetarian diet's bad for everyone by any means. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you name any diet and somebody somewhere thrives on it. Yeah. But what happens with vegetarians, I, I get the, the, I call them the vegan zealots show up on my blog who amazingly think they're going to change my mind. <laughs> and yeah, me too. they're constantly sending me links to these studies, you know, where like study says vegetarians live longer, vegetarians are leaner, whatever. Well, they're, they're these lousy observational studies and which I, what I've tried to explain to them, which of course doesn't work, is First off, it's health-minded people who choose vegetarianism to begin with. Right. And then a lot of vegetarians, in fact, over time, three-quarters of the people who adopt a vegetarian diet quit. The average washout is about eight to nine years. And the number one reason that people give is health reasons. Yeah. So of that 25% left standing, let's figure out who these people are. They're health-minded people who did not experience health problems on a vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. Of course, they are healthier than the population as a whole. It's a double cherry-picked group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's really interesting. Now, another thing that you talk about is obesity as a a symptom and how we're focused on the wrong thing being the obesity crisis when it's really another issue or or set of issues altogether, specifically metabolic syndrome. So why don't we cover that a little? Yeah, although I've changed my mind slightly on that since oh, really? I made made the film in one area, and mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll I'll explain what that is. But because obesity is associated with heart disease, associated with diabetes, associated with cancer, once again, scientists tend to confuse correlation with causation, yeah. and so they say fat people have these diseases. Being fat must give you those diseases. Well, for the most part, no. <laughs> a bad diet will make you fat and it will give you heart disease. But mm-hmm. lots of skinny people have heart disease. A bad diet can make you fat and it can give you diabetes. But there are plenty of thin diabetics out there. Plenty of thin people die from cancer. So they're confusing a correlation with a cause. It's the bad diet that makes people unhealthy and can, but does not always make them fat. Now, the one place I said I've changed my mind is a little bit is I've since learned that once you develop a certain amount of abdominal uh, fat, mm-hmm. visceral fat, down around the organs, not the kind you can pinch up under your skin. Yep. It does seem to start producing um, inflammation by itself. Right. In other words, that subcutaneous fat will produce inflammatory responses which add to the problem. Mm-hmm. So in that case, yes, the fat itself is probably con- either causing or at least contributing to, to the disease. And then... Your view on statins is, is covered in the film as well. Yeah, I wouldn't take a statin if, unless you had a gun to my head. <laughs> I, think you, the, so actually, I think they are the worst drugs, some of the worst drugs ever created. Yeah, a lot of people ask me if, if they should, that, you know, um, they're already on them because their doctors have, have advised them to either take them in the first place or stay on them for an extended period of time. Um, so what is the reason, what would you say to them? Well, I would say your doctor isn't treating heart disease. Your doctor's treating your cholesterol lab score. Mm -hmm. And again, if you believe that high cholesterol is the cause of heart disease, then I can see why you would believe, well, then we must knock that high cholesterol down and therefore will prevent heart disease. But that's not the way it works. The high cholesterol is not the cause of the heart disease. And just beating your cholesterol down artificially is not going to prevent heart disease. Mm-hmm. If it did, statins would be effective for women. They're not. Yeah. Women who take statins do not have lower rates of heart disease, even though they're beating their cholesterol down. Statins don't have not been shown to benefit older people, people over 65. And by the way, that's the group that has the majority of the heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So we're just beating down people's cholesterol scores because it makes their doctors feel better to see a lower cholesterol right. lab score. 
-hmm. but the side effects are not worth it. And there's there's one small group, men under 65, who already had several risk factors for for heart disease, who have a slightly lower rate of heart disease if they take statins, slightly. Yeah. And and I don't think it has anything to do with beating their cholesterol down. It's because, among other things, statins seem to lower inflammation a bit. And inflammation is probably a driver for heart disease. Yeah. But, I mean, the side effects. And I'm very passionate about this because my dad was on statins for 20 years. Wow. And he ended up developing Alzheimer's in his late 60s. And that is one of the known, although not very often recognized and certainly not admitted to by the pharmaceutical companies, but that is one of the known side effects is cognitive issues. Yeah. My mom took statins and she ended up with all kinds of muscle pains and her doctor never traced it to the statins. She just gave her a painkiller. Wow. I was the one who finally told her as I was doing research into fathead, mom, statins cause muscle pains and they don't benefit any women anyway. Stop taking them. Yeah. <laughs> so she stopped taking them and the muscle pains went away. So That's now I bad. think I think they're I think they're a pretty awful drug for most people. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> you said that. I, I tend to agree, but I'm not a medical doctor, so I, I, I tend not to offer my opinion on that much. I'm not a medical not doctor, but I've played one on TV. Yeah. And I, <laughs> there you uh, go. And I am willing to to give people an earful anyway, if they ask me. Yeah. <laughs> there was just an article someone sent me today. There was a, a, a new study that came out um, by a woman who's been studying statin side effects for several years. Mm -hmm. And it said that the, the risk to women of getting weaker is worse than we thought. Oh, really? It's happening to a lot more women than we thought. Jeez, that's awful. I hope yeah. that gets out there. Well, <laughs> I, this is helping, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, they they can statins can damage your mitochondria. That's your yeah. that's your muscles' little powerhouse, and those get damaged, you're going to get weak. One thing I I found and I wrote about a long time ago is that athletes who are prescribed statins mm -hmm. have a much higher rate of of giving them up than the population as a whole, hmm. which makes perfect sense. If you are if you work at a desk, you know, and your your biggest form of of exercise is walking from the parking lot to your desk. Mm -hmm. Your muscles may be getting weaker and you might not notice. Yeah. But if you're an athlete and you're taking a drug and your muscles start to get weak or you get a little slow, you're going to notice right away because it's your livelihood. Uh, that does make sense. Yeah. And now when you started making the movie uh, and, and researching all of this, you actually made some decisions and, and changed your mind about the health and, and specifically low fat versus low carb. Mm -hmm. What happened there? Well, it, w it was really just a matter of following the evidence. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I decided was that the low-fat diet was not necessary. We don't need to cut the saturated fat and the cholesterol out of our diet to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking into um, what has this rise in carbohydrate consumption done to us. And that's when I started learning a lot more about diabetes and insulin resistance. And uh, you put two and two together and it's... The, the low fat diet really caused people to eat more carbs because you got to eat something. Mm -hmm. Protein tends to stay relatively stable for most people. Yeah. So when they cut down on fat, they eat more carbs. Yeah. And uh, we, we cut down on the fat that's good for us and we ate more of the macronutrient that if, let me put it this way, if it's not bad for us, it also happens to be the one macronutrient we don't need. Yeah. I mean, if you look in a biochemistry textbook, you'll find essential amino acids, mm -hmm. i.e. proteins. You'll find essential fatty acids. There are no essential carbohydrates. Yeah. So the one food we can actually live without, they told us we should base our diets on. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't think everybody has to be on a low-carb diet, by the yeah. way. And, well, uh, and actually, in the movie, you were around, uh, what was it, 100 which isn't yeah, even, it, like, that's more controlled carb than low, right? Yeah, it's, it's low-ish. Mm -hmm. um, although, for a lot of people, getting it down under 100 is, is, is hugely beneficial. It keeps yeah. the blood sugar spikes down. But I don't think everybody has to shoot for zero. I don't think everybody has to shoot for under 50. I think most people should stay away from 300 a day unless they're really active and they're burning it off before their liver can say, well, let's see, blood sugar's too high. He's putting more sugar in. Why... Mm -hmm. I'm just going to have to pull some of that out the bloodstream and turn it into fat, yeah. which is what your liver does. Uh, so I don't think 300 a day is good for most people. 100, mm, you know, it kind of depends on your metabolic condition. If you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, 100 is probably too much. Mm -hmm. And now 
<laughs> we saw your diet in the movie, but what is it like in your real life? Well, it's today? nothing like it's nothing like that in in real life. I mean, I was trying to make a point, mm-hmm. um, partly to show you know it's that all that fatty food because that's what they talked about and supersize me and all these people who are hysterical about McDonald's and all that they keep talking about their high fat meals. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make the point that it's not the fat. And also, since people do eat fast food, whether you and I tell them to or not, mm-hmm. we may as well tell them how you can eat fast food and do okay with it. Right. Um, I certainly don't recommend it as health food, but I was, you know, I was making a point in that my my daily diet's nothing like that. Um, we eat mostly kind of modified paleo, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. We we live on meats, eggs, seafood, nuts. Uh, some low sugar fruit, a lot of vegetables, a lot of green vegetables. This time of year, vegetables out of the garden as well. Oh, nice. Um, we eat some full fat dairy. I don't eat as much of it as I used to, but I'm, I still enjoy cream in the coffee and yeah. cheese on the burgers. P- of course, people who are pure paleo would cut the dairy too. Yeah. I, I'm not interested in going quite that, you know, <laughs> quite that aesthetic or <laughs> yeah. monk, monk-like because uh, the, the full fat dairy doesn't seem to be harming me in any way that I can tell. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. I, I enjoy my heavy cream and my grass-fed butter. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Kerrygold? You get the Kerrygold? I do. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Awesome stuff. Awesome I actually, stuff. I had Dave Asprey on my uh, my podcast a little while back. Have you heard about his buttered coffee? Is that the bulletproof coffee? <laughs> that is, yeah. I have heard of it. I haven't tried it yet. Is that just butter and coffee? Uh, butter and coconut oil. So it's like brain food. And it's actually, it sounds bizarre, but it's What, does it's he delicious. stir it up with a mixer or something? Cause... Yeah, you use one of those. Uh, I, I have one of those handheld drink mixer things that you oh, get yeah? for like two bucks at Ikea. And it makes it into a nice froth at the top and it's it's uh, glorious <laughs> i do it probably once a week it's not something uh, okay. that you know you should do every day but it's i would highly recommend it. why shouldn't you do it every day it sounds fantastic i know right <laughs> <laughs> it is so uh now i did want to talk about this too obviously you have some opinions and uh, i would imagine that you you probably uh, I, ruffled a few feathers i've been known to have opinions yes. <laughs> yeah so what was the uh the fallout i guess as as fathead has gotten bigger and more people are taking notice, I, I would imagine that you're in the bullseye. I am. Um, I get some trolls showing up on my blog um, because I'm, you know, talk about eating meat is good for you and all that. That, of course, attracts a fair number of what I call the vegan zealots. Or my brother actually came up with a better term when he was doing guest posts for me, vegetrolians. Um <laughs> So I get them showing up, uh, tr- trying to, you know, uh, convert me. Uh, I get not too often, but I, you know, I still get some hate mail. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the way I treat that is I open it up, and if I see that it's a hate mail, I take huge pleasure in deleting it without reading it. Yeah. Because then I think to myself, you spent what an hour writing that. Mm-hmm. And I just deleted it in two seconds. <laughs> I don't try to answer them. If you get hate mail from people, they, you're not going to convince them. You're not going to argue with them. It's a waste of time. Yeah. I don't want to put their negative comments in my brain. I don't want to absorb their their negativity. So when I open it up and one second into it, I'm like, you scumbag front for McDonald's. And it's like, delete. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that must that must seem so preposterous to be in your position and be called a front for McDonald's. I know. I'm I thinking if I was a front for McDonald's, like, <laughs> where's my you know where's my huge stock portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I you know it's not like I uh, I made a million dollars on this thing. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I, I I get those, and uh, I, the only ones I answer are if there's something that makes them interesting and worth worth answering. Mm-hmm. For instance, I got one from a, a doctor who kept calling me an idiot, and his email was full of misspellings <laughs> and bad grammar. I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> I just had to answer and point out, you know, the proper use of an apostrophe, and uh, that the the uh, y o u r does not mean you are. Oh no! You know it means belongs to you, and I, I so I pointed out all these errors, and I, you know, I, I just had to say, and then nothing cracks me up more than someone who couldn't pass sixth, a sixth grade grammar <laughs> class calling me an idiot. 
how the hell did you get through med school? <laughs> you don't want to insult a comedian. <laughs> it's usually a bad idea. Yeah. It's usually a bad idea. I'd imagine you probably get a, a thick hide over the years, too. Oh, my God. You have to. Yeah. You have to because you can go out and do stand-up comedy. You can walk out into a club that holds 120 people, and you can make 118 of them laugh, and two of them will walk up afterwards and go, you're not funny. Yeah. And it's like, did you notice the 118 people <laughs> laughing? So, no, if, if you, you, you better not have a thin skin if, you're, if you want to be a comedian. And if yeah. you do, you will uh, you'll get over it real quickly. Right, right. <laughs> so we're coming up on time, Tom. But uh, before we go, w- let's talk about what you're up to these days and, and what's coming next or anything else you want to talk about. Sure. Our, our next plan is actually to produce a... Uh, like a, a very illustrated, easy to read book for parents and kids. Oh wow! On how uh, various foods affect your health, and kind of what inspired that is I. And this surprised me. I didn't plan Fathead this way, but I've gotten a lot of emails from parents. In fact, I got one of these emails today from parents telling me how much their kids enjoyed it. Oh, I can and see thank, that. Yeah. Thank you for making this. My kids were laughing. They loved it. They wanted to watch it again. <laughs> and and by the way, you got through to them. They they don't want to drink sugar. You know, they don't want to drink Coke anymore. And oh wow. They they want to eat healthier and all that. And I didn't I didn't set out to make Fathead a movie that kids would enjoy, but it was a hugely pleasant surprise to find out that they do. Yeah. And so we look around at all these great diet books that are out there and there are a lot of really good ones out there now and great podcasts and places for information very very little of it is written at the kid level Mm -hmm. and we got to convince the kids and so our next project is to try to make a book that has that same sort of simple fun style that we used like explaining how insulin and sugar work together in the blood and all that and to do a book on that topic and along with the book we'd like to do a companion dvd um, maybe the DVD would be more targeted at the parents because I plan to bring maybe more of the science into it. Mm-hmm. But I, but even even in the book written for kids, I want to try to explain the science, but to try to do it as simply as I can so that they get it. Very cool. Yeah, that's an awesome project. It's just an idea right now, but we're uh, we're we're committed to getting it done. Yeah, I could see that doing very well. <laughs> and I say we because my wife is the the artist. Oh wow. Yeah, you know all the stuff in Fathead, the guy from CSPI and all the little cholesterol men and the <laughs> yeah. little insulins with the big clubs and all that. I mean, I can't draw to save my life, but she's actually a very talented artist. So basically, I oh, think wow. of them and she draws them. Yeah. That is so cool. And we didn't even plan that when we got married. It just turned out that way. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. It is. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much, Tom. This has been a blast, and we'll definitely have to have you, have you on the show again soon. Anytime. So if you want to hear more from Tom, you can head over to fathead-movie.com or you can just look up Fathead on Netflix or Hulu or, or a heck of a lot of other places. Or you can come on over to, uh, to fatburningman.com and I have a link that goes directly to his website and a short clip, one of my favorites from the movie itself. And uh, remember, I have a really special announcement and invitation for you guys coming next week. So uh, you can hop over and enter your email address if you want to get that. All right, so until next week, I'm planning to have the author of Wheat Belly come on, so get excited because that's a killer book, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to interviewing him. So stay tuned, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.